such a blessing to worship together with you. So we're going to be in Isaiah 59. And I got to say, Isaiah is one of those books that you, you have a little bit of trepidation to tackle because it's long and it just goes and goes. But um, I have found, I hope that you're with me, that it hasn't been dry or dull or monotonous, even though there's a lot of the same subject matter. And today is, is more of the same, but it's all good stuff. Um, so yes, Isaiah 59. And let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to read your word, to hear your voice, that you give us the strength and the wisdom to walk in your ways, to do the things that please you. Thank you that you have things for all of us here today, that you have truth for us to lay hold of. You have uh, clearly things that you want to deal with us in so that we might have a close walk with you. So we pray, Lord, that you bless our time, that you would anoint your word and fill us with your spirit so that we can hear what you're saying to us all in Jesus' name. Amen. After Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, their response was to blame something, right? Adam blamed Eve and Eve blamed the serpent right from the beginning. Like first mistake, first uh, rebellion against God. There was no fessing up to the failure. There was no admitting what they had done. It was just, hey, well, she said that. And, well, this, the serpent deceived me. And, uh, but God didn't, he wasn't tricked or, or thrown off by their blame. They were held accountable for the things that they did. They were put out of the garden and guarded from the tree of life. And it occurred to me how, how rare a quality it is for someone to actually own a mistake completely without assigning any blame to their circumstances or the fact that they're tired or that they're getting older. I mean, I went through all this with my ankle injury where I'm like, yeah, there's, I could blame a lot of things, but how much of the responsibility for this am I going to put on myself? Now, granted, there are times that accidents happen and things happen beyond our control. Um, but the truth is our tendency to blame others is so natural we may not even recognize we do it. And we'll also, instead of putting the blame on someone, we'll kind of blame someone else for them. Like, ah, you know, you had some time off. That's why you had that injury. Oh, the guy was close to you. It's like, yeah, yeah, but I got to own it. So we got to own it. Um, now, God, with his people, he did not set, set his love on them because they were the mightiest or strongest people. Uh, it, he actually said, I've chosen you because you're the fewest, because you're few in number. That's in Deuteronomy 7, 7. And if you were to pick players for your side or, or people for your team, you want the most qualified. You want the people who would help you to do best. But God, he chose Israel by grace. He loved them because he loved them. That's why. Because he chose to and he wanted to. Not because they were deserving of that favor. No one could possibly earn or warrant such favor from God that he would look upon you and love you uh, despite God calling his people and blessing them. At a point, they forsook him. And at that point, he began to cease protecting them as he once did. And he didn't answer their prayers because he was not going to reward their sin. And then instead of confessing their sin, they blamed God. 
you know, like God could help us. We know he's almighty and we know he's all powerful, but we're still in pain and we're still suffering. Why is he allowing this? When is he going to act? And they began to put the weight of their responsibility for sin upon God for not acting as they wanted. No matter what we face as children of God, we can know God loves us because he loves us. That's why. It's not because I deserve it. And I would encourage you to never let a when or a why question shake you from the glorious truth that God is good. God remains good despite the things we endure. So Isaiah 59 verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue has muttered perversity. People wondered why God wasn't answering their prayers. They say, we're fasting, we're sacrificing, we're being obedient to what the law has commanded but there's no respite, there's no deliverance like we hoped. And God told these questioning people, God's lack of response has nothing to do with him. He is able to see you. He is able to hear you. In fact, that's the very reason why he's not answering your, your prayers. That's why he's not responding, because he sees the blood that's on your hands. He hears your lips speaking perversity, and you're wanting God to, to act on your behalf, it's not that he can't. It's not that your problems are too big for him or uh, you're too far away. He's too far removed from your problem to intervene. It's not that at all. Their sin had separated them from God. Though his presence dwelt in the midst of them in the temple, though he had called them by his name, the people drew near to him with their mouths, but the Bible says their hearts were far from him. And so it's not that he couldn't hear them or see them. Now, God clearly does not react to problems as we do. Things like sickness or the market crashing or injuries, accidents, wars, all these things, they catch us off guard. We can feel prepared, and then there's that one thing that we were just not expecting that happens. Anyone else had that happen? Where you, you think you have all your ducks in a row, but as it's been said, ducks don't stay in a row. They just waddle everywhere. And so... Uh, Nothing surprises God. We can know that about him. That he actually knows our needs before we pray. He's not reacting to the situation. He's like, okay, now that this has happened, I'm going to do this. But it says in Isaiah 65, 24, speaking of conditions for his people in New Jerusalem, he says, it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. So before they even call out to God, he's already answered them. He's already working on their behalf. And this is a God that doesn't change. This is the same God that loves us. We're impressed to know information in real time. You know, you have your mobile phone. We have the internet. You're like, oh, I can check on that. We can see. And we can even prognosticate a little bit. Like, is, what's the weather going to be like today? And, but God knows it. It may say 90% chance of rain and not rain. It may say 100% chance of rain and not rain. But see, God knows if it's going to rain or not right where you are. He knows. And this passage is reminding us that when we remain unrepentant in sin, it separates us from God. It hinders him from answering the prayers that we pray.
It says in Proverbs 15, 29, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. He hears the prayer of the righteous, those who do righteously. Now, we're not made righteous because of our works, because of our efforts. It's through faith in him, by grace. You would agree that a righteous man can do wickedly, right? Someone who follows Jesus, someone who believes in God, can still choose to do the wrong thing. We can be overtaken with a trespass. And when we make that decision, and we continue going in that way despite God's conviction, it does damage to our relationship with God. It would be like if I asked to borrow your car, and then I sold your car, and I left with the money. That would certainly put a damper on our relationship, don't you think? You would, you would have some words to say to me about all that. Like, what were you thinking? Are you serious? Are you for real? I did this for you, and look what you did. God's people, they wanted help for themselves while they were shedding innocent blood, while they were trusting in lies. And he's like, I'm not going to reward that behavior. I'm going to give you justice for your sin instead of benefits for sacrifice, because to obey is better than sacrifice. Now, pain and trials, they're a great wake-up call for us to examine ourselves, to see, Lord, am I... Am I walking in the way that pleases you? Is there any part of my life that is a direct consequence for my sin? And the Lord will reveal even this to you. But not all pain or every trial is a direct consequence for your sin. It can be, but not necessarily. Remember the case of Job. He was a righteous man. And God allowed him to be beaten up by Satan, having his, his possessions taken away from him, even his children dying, all of them. And it was a, a tragedy, a great travesty, really. But God, he allowed even Job's friends to come. They assumed that because of the things that had happened to him, he had sinned. But the fact was, they were in sin. God leveraged the situation, though, to, to that one watershed moment. What did he do when he saw that God was great and mighty and he was repentant in dust and ashes? When he acknowledged that God was Lord over all, when he repented and obeyed God in praying for his friends, the friends who had hurt him and, and accused him of being sinful, God used that situation to reveal Job's sin to Job, to draw him closer to God, to restore relationships with his friends, and to doubly bless him in the end. That was the result. It wasn't an easy road, but God revealed himself to him. There's not one of us that can go through a day without washing and be clean, right? I take a shower every day. We all get dirty going through life. We all sin. We all make mistakes, and we need to have those moments when we confess our sin before the Lord because we live, we have unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. And we see guys like Daniel who were righteous and that man could not find fault with them, but he confessed his sin and the sin of the people. And that should be our, our path as well. We can't live a day without needing God's forgiveness. Just like I can't go through a day without needing to wash my hands or wash my face. Psalm 91.14, God's promise to those who love him. 
It says, because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. The people who love God are those who obey God. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so this is a promise for us. Because he set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. You can't earn that. But we can meet God's conditions and trust him. Isaiah 59, verse 4. No one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. They hatch vipers' eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed a viper breaks out. Their webs will not become garments, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. Our God is one of truth and justice, yet God's people were not interested in His way. They were going to go their own way. They resorted to lies and to schemes. A good example of this would be King Saul. He didn't seek God's guidance when it was times of peace. But when the Philistines invaded, he desperately sought guidance from God because he knew he couldn't win this battle. God wasn't it's so ironic. He didn't obey the word of the Lord through Samuel while he lived. And yet because God wasn't speaking to him, he sought the counsel of a medium to call up Samuel from the dead so that he could inquire of, of Samuel through this witch. So he's not listening to God and then he's seeking God. God's not answering him and so he consults a medium. Right? There's this inconsistency there where if why didn't he heed the word of the Lord when God spoke to him? Then he could pray and God would answer. The end does not justify the means. Samuel did not have good words to say. Not, there was no comfort or hope in the things that he said. It says in Proverbs twenty seventeen, Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be filled with gravel. Now, can you imagine, you think you're biting into some just delicious, soft bread, and crusty, sure. It can be crusty bread. I like it very, I like it. It's great. But imagine that you're putting this in your mouth. You're thinking you're biting down on bread. You're going to satisfy your mouth and your stomach, and it's just gravel, and it breaks your teeth. Now, breaking your teeth, it's a permanent problem. Right? Those teeth are not going to grow back. I remember when I busted out my two front teeth, it was so big for me because I'm like, these are permanent teeth. Like, I, they're not going to grow back. I'm like this forever. I'll just look ridiculous. Um, praise the Lord for porcelain veneer crowns. Can I get an amen out there? <laughs> Sin does permanent damage to us. It appeals to us at first. But in the end, it does permanent damage that only Jesus can heal and restore. We have to get this. It's a permanent condition. Sin is 100% deadly. It will destroy us. But through Christ, we have redemption. We have salvation. He's the one who, I mean, I can't regrow my, my permanent teeth, but he can give me a new heart. He can give me a new mind. And that's awesome. God compared the people to deadly vipers. They lay eggs that bear the same. He says, Any, anyone who eats those eggs, they're going to die. And anyone who crushes one of those eggs, that viper is going to come out and bite them. 
your wicked generation will give birth to another wicked generation. A good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. He says you're weaving lies like a spider does to entrap its prey. You're weaving these lies to try to, to cover yourselves, but they're not going to become garments. I can see right through them. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they, they sewed fig leaves together to cover their nakedness, but God knew it right away. What have you done? Have you eaten from the tree that I told you not to eat from? Like, they couldn't hide it. And in the same way, he's like, you're not going to cover your, your nakedness. It's all, it's all bare before me. I can see it clearly. You can't hide from me through lies. You're not going to escape my notice. You've heard the phrase, a chip off the old block. Now you realize this new generation that's rising up today that we might have concerns about, do you realize they're chips off the old block? We who have concerns about the, the generations to follow know that we are no better than they. So if you're going to be concerned about the disrespect and the lifestyles and all this of the generations to come, do you have concern for yourself? Do you realize that when you see them and there's something in you that hates, you just look at that and you go, oh, horrible. You're looking in the mirror. That's what God is saying. He's like, hey, you're giving birth to this and, and it's really come from you. It didn't come from me. If we don't take heed to ourselves, lies and hypocrisy will destroy us as easily as it will them. And so he's having them, hey, consider yourselves. Look to your own ways. See that you walk in my way. Verse 7. Their feet run to evil and make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they have not known, and there is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. The word violence in the Strong's Concordance, it's by implication wrong, unjust gain, or damage. So it shows that we don't have to hurl insults or throw punches to be violent. You may say, well, I've never gotten a real fight before. Like, I'm not a violent person. But no, this is speaking of unjust gain, damage. We can do that without the insults or the physical violence. And Paul referenced this passage in Romans 3, 15 through 17 in aiming at proving the universal problem of sin, that we've all sinned. It says in Romans 3.15, Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. So we, if we try to dodge that, and we say, well, no, this really isn't applicable to me. I'm not a violent person. I haven't shed innocent blood. This really doesn't apply. Well, according to Jesus, lusting with your eyes is equivalent to you committed adultery if you have even looked with desire. That hatred reveals murder in our heart. You may not have followed through with actually killing someone, but if you have hate and it's abiding in you, there's all the, I guess, the ingredients necessary to actually carry it out. And it may be our own selfishness that keeps us from doing that. The word hate, it means to love less, which is pretty insightful, to despise, by extension, to love less. So as we've talked about it, 
the nature and the debilitating aspects of sin, it should be very clear and that we're all guilty, right? We have all sinned. We're crooked people. We choose crooked paths. We make crooked paths for ourselves. And there's no peace going our own way. Verse 9. Therefore justice is far from us, nor does righteousness overtake us. We look for light, but there is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in blackness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as at twilight. We are as dead men in desolate places. We all growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We look for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. Because God's people preferred crooked paths, there would be no justice for them besides God's justice. Like they were, they were like, Lord, we want justice. And he's like, well, I'll give you my justice, which whatever a man sows, he will also reap. That was his justice. They chose to walk in darkness, so light was hidden from their eyes because they chose that devious path. They didn't have God's guidance. If they would only admit they were in darkness and confess their sin, God's light would shine upon them and he would show them the way. Like the men of Sodom struck blind by angels, they grew weary trying to find the door. They couldn't find the way out of their problems because they were going their own way. There's people who have 20-20 vision, but they cannot see. People who love to sunbake, but they're in darkness spiritually. Could, so, could you please turn to Matthew chapter 6, 19 through 24? Matthew 6, 19 through 24. Jesus speaking. I'm going to read maybe more than usual just to put it in context with what we're reading in Isaiah. It says, Do not lay for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Jesus begins by comparing treasures on earth with treasures in heaven. He says the earthly treasures, they can be lost, stolen, ruined, but those treasures in heaven, they retain value for eternity. So we have to ask ourselves, what do I value more? Do I value treasures on earth? Am I living for these things or am I living for God and trying to please him, knowing that there will be an re eternal reward for me? Then Jesus, and if you were to read this maybe quickly, you might think he's talking about many different things, but he's actually building on the same point. He then speaks of eyes. He says, um, your eyes allow light to come into your body. So there's light and there's darkness. If your eye is good, then you'll see the light. But if your eye is evil, 
then you're filled with darkness. So you're not seeing things as you ought to see. It's kind of like when we put on sunnies and we go outside and there's this filter that's changing the light as it passes through and hits my retinas. It's going to appear different. So he says, if you are in darkness, you can't see the light as you should. It's a great darkness. You think you're seeing clearly, but you're not. And finally, he says, we have to choose if we'll be loyal to God or loyal to earthly things, earthly treasures. If your heart is ensnared in earthly pursuits, you have no place in heaven, you have no treasure in heaven. Because the people who have a claim upon heaven are those who love him and who have been purchased by him, ruled by him. Had God's people sown to spiritual things and denying self and serving God, they would have had the greatest advocate and savior forever. But since they were focused on their own earthly pursuits and going their own way, they, they had no future with God. We've all been there, right? We've all been on that search, and maybe we're searching right now. But the Lord, he is light. In him is no darkness at all. He will show us the way if we'll repent and turn to him. So Isaiah 59, verse 12. For our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and as for our iniquities, we know them. In transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood, justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off. For truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. When it comes to financial investments, we like the idea of compounding interest, right? Exponential growth. I mean, adding, why add when you can multiply? Way better. The prophet acknowledged the sins of the, God's people were multiplying before him. It wasn't just adding, it was multiplying. And not just one times one times one, because of course it would just be one, but Imagine if it was a hundred, like a sin is a hundred percent deadly. A hundred times a hundred times a hundred times a hundred. That begins to add up really quickly. You have a mind-boggling number before too long. And that's where God's people came to, the, they were like, hey, this is the real condition. We have multiplied our sin before you. And see the effect of sin there. It says it testified against them, it remained with them, and they knew it. They knew them. Cain knew he had sinned in killing his brother, but it didn't mean that he admitted it before God, right? He says, well, hey, where's your brother? His blood is crying out from the ground right now. Oh, where's my brother? Am I my brother's keeper? Mm -hmm. Like he never said, yeah, you got me. Never. Cain never said that. His thoughts were for himself. Oh, Lord, anyone that finds me, they're just going to kill me. You have a problem with that? What did you just do? Again, we are consistent utterly consistent in the flesh. The prophet knew the people were guilty in lying and in, in deceiving and departing from God. And, and if you look through that passage, their mouths were chief offenders. The things that they said, it really showed their hearts were far from God. And I, I am learning to hold my tongue, to use words to edify instead of an outlet for folly. And so there's this lament, justice is turned back, righteousness stands afar off, for truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. It's kind of like the people of God, they were trapped in a burning structure that was falling down all around them and the fire brigade 
couldn't, it was so hot they couldn't even get near to put out the flames. And even if they could, there was no water to extinguish the blaze. They were completely hopeless without any help in the world. And it's like our guilt is so monumental, truth has fallen in the street, equity is afar off, there's nothing that can come and help us. We can't claim innocence for your uh, salvation. Like we can't, there's nothing that we can do. Their lives were like a comatose, mentally ill person suffering from flesh-eating bacteria. There was just nothing they could do to save themselves. And this is a good place when we are truly beyond all hope, where we, have, we, we are at the end, where we say, there is nothing I can do to help myself, to save myself. Then we will submit to the healing that only God can offer. And this is where it starts getting much brighter. Verse 15. So truth fails, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and was clad with zeal as a cloak. God saw that truth had been thrown aside. He saw that people who tried to live righteously were killed for it. And this injustice displeased him. He saw it and just said, what is this? There was no man standing up for the people. There was no one able to stand in the gap and help those in desperate need. They were without intercessor, but because he loved them, he would not stand by forever. The first 14 verses, it drives home the fact that God's people did not deserve salvation and they couldn't accomplish it for themselves, but God would give it anyway. It says, God's own arm brought salvation for him and his own righteousness, it sustained him. Because God's people, who had been his possession, they were an extension of himself. And he's saying, I am not going to allow that to happen anymore. The time had come when he says, I am going to send a Savior, and I'm going to do it because I love them, and because I want to, because of me, I am going to do it. Not because they have fasted, not because they have sacrificed, not because they've done anything worthy of me intervening, I'm going to do it because I love them. And I love them because I love them. Isn't that good that God loves you because he loves you? What hope this gives us. He would restore them. They had been unfaithful to him, but he would come to them. And he would bring them out. And he would bring them in to his great promises for his sake. Because he is worthy of that. So that's why he did it. Not for them as much as they benefited greatly from it. It was for him. He's a glorious and a righteous God. He would redeem and restore them for his sake. Now we see here this description of spiritual armor. We have this armor supplied us through the Spirit in Ephesians 6. There's a couple of differences here. It speaks of the garments of vengeance and a cloak of zeal. Vengeance is God's sovereign territory. He says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. So he gets to wear that. It's kind of like, uh, you know, the general, he wears different clothes than the, the grunt with the, the foot soldier. He's like, I get to wear that. I get to wear the vengeance. 
that's mine. You make place for vengeance. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. So don't try putting that on. It, it will pull you down. Uh, we, we're, not, we're not able to bear that, but God is. But I believe we are call, called to be clothed with this cloak of zeal, a godly jealousy. It's that picture of uh, the father who has betrothed his daughter to be married, and he's going to make sure that she is not uh, ensnared by the smooth words of suitors that always seem to show up when he leaves. So he, in, the, uh, in this Bible time, it was common that you would have an arranged marriage where the, the father of the groom and the father of the bride, they would make an arrangement. There would be a bride price. It would be agreed upon. They were married when they were betrothed, the husband and wife, though they wouldn't live together for a time. At the end of the betrothal period, they would consummate their vows and they would begin to live together. Now, Paul, he compares himself to that father who had betrothed the church like a bride to Jesus. And he says, when, I, when, I, when Jesus comes back, I don't want to, him to find you courting these other suitors. I want you to be pure and holy. I want you to be a virgin. I want you to be chaste. I want you to have eyes only for him, prepared for his return. And he says, I, I have this godly jealousy for you. And we should have that for ourselves and God and for one another, that the church our fellowship here would remain chaste and set apart for Christ. That we would be pure upon his return. It wouldn't be like Jesus coming back and, oh, who's this in the bed with you? It's like, oh, it's more than awkward. It's horrifying that that could be the case. So the way we live matters. We shouldn't uh, ignore or just say, well, you know, it's between him and God. When we see another brother or sister overtaken in sin, we're called to restore that person in a spirit of gentleness, remembering that we too can easily fall into sin. So Isaiah 21, 18. According to their deeds, according he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, the coastlands he will fully repay. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. So God would take vengeance upon the enemies of who plundered his people according to their deeds. Those who opposed him, those who led people astray, he would visit them and they would fear him. This administration of his justice from the west to the east, they would all fear God. They would say, whoa, he is powerful. Don't cross him. <laughs> Do what honors and pleases him. From a young age, we're quite comfortable with the idea of justice. I think we begin to uh, get more uncomfortable the older we get. Probably because we realize that we're on the wrong side of justice sometimes, or justice is improperly carried out, or it's not just according to our view. Right? So it becomes a little bit more complicated. But think of yourself as a kid. You rejoice in justice. You want to see uh, what's right prevail. Now, I've got a little uh, visible visual aid here. Now, this, uh, this is something that was administered by my parents to me from a young age. It says, with love, right here, a little reminder. And uh, this provided my parents a degree of respect because we knew my parents were loving, biblical, they were consistent. They were a great uh, inspiration 
and influence on my life. We knew what would be coming if we willfully disobeyed my parents. We had seen it in scripture, and we knew it was never administered in an unloving way. If we did what was right, we had nothing to worry about. There was nothing to worry about. But if we chose to do wrong, and if we did not admit we did wrong, well then, that was the, ult- that was the end, right? That was, uh, it was not the first response. It was kind of uh, the last resort when it came to discipline. But that discipline was there. Now, what gave me great comfort is the hand that disciplined me was the same hand that could protect me. And I knew that my dad's hand would measure out the rod with care. But when it came to uh, someone breaking into our house or being kidnapped, that, that man would give his life for me. I had nothing to be afraid of. To be on the good side of that justice, what comfort and peace it brought my life. And even greater so, we can say, with Jesus Christ. When we're on the right side of his justice, when we do the things that please him, there's no um, fear of torment because we've tasted and seen that he is good, that he loves us. We can equate this to our spiritual walk with God. It says, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift a standard against him. Now, I've never been in a castle when the gate is breached or the wall is broken down and all these enemies that are armed to the teeth are rushing at me to kill me and my family. I've never experienced that. If just one person speaks harshly to me, that can bother me. And and they're not even out for my blood, right? They're not out for my life. We can be easily rattled by a lot less than a flood of enemies that are just like, whoa, whoa. Like, have you seen the pictures of the tsunami or the flood that's coming through? And you're like, what can stop that? You know, if you're in that that hut or that house, and the cars are, are moving above the ceiling, like, it's just too much. There's nothing you could do. You just go, wow, doomed. But Jesus, he says, I will raise up a standard. God is the standard. He raises up that banner, and he says, you know, I'm going to protect you. This is the mustering location. This is the place of peace and contentment. This is where you will find rest for your soul. Even when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of God will lift up a standard against them. That would be a flag, a banner. So you have nothing to fear. God knows about that. Even when the enemy is like a flood. It doesn't matter if it's in the the physical realm or the spiritual realm. If every... If every demon in hell is mobilized against us, God will mobilize heaven to protect. And he's given us his word that even one one strong angel is able to bind Satan and throw him in the bottomless pit. How much more strength and protection do we have in Jesus, who has bought us with his own blood? You guys know that, that story about Jehoshaphat and his people? They had the enemy coming. They're like, there's nothing we can do. We are going to lose. We don't have the men. We don't have the weapons. We're done. And in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 12, the king says, O our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, 
nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. So I, he admits it. Huge army out there. Can't beat them. I don't even know what to do about them. But God, we're looking to you. And it's good when we come to that place. There's nothing we can do. God, we need you. And trusting him. Looking to him. We need to admit we're powerless. Verse 20. The Redeemer will come to Zion. And to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. My spirit who is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth nor from the mouth of your descendants nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord, from this time and forever. We can have a temporary problem. God has an eternal solution. It's good to know. Jesus is that Redeemer that God has sent to save people from their sins when they repent and trust in him. He's like, I'm going to give you a covenant. I'm going to make an agreement with you that your, my spirit will be upon you and I'm going to put my words in your mouth. In that story in 2 Chronicles with Jehoshaphat, the spirit of God came upon Jehaziel and he provided that word. He says, guys, you won't even need to fight in this battle. Sometimes we feel like we have to fight. I've got to fight for God. I've got to stand for this. And I've got to stand for that. Well, we are called to stand. But in one sense, we don't have to fight. Because God doesn't need us to fight for him. He's not a weak God. He is able to do everything. When we admit that we're powerless, he will give us power. He will give us strength. And when we humble ourselves, he says, I will exalt you. I will lift you up. We can be very frustrated with trying to lift ourselves up. When he says, I'm the lifter of your head. You're trying to muster up some sort of courage. Look to me. Admit you don't have an answer. I will save you. Could you turn to Psalm chapter 40, verse 1, and 1 through 4? Have you ever been in that place where you realize you've made a fatal mistake and you're totally hopeless? That is the place where God's people eventually came to. And, if, and we also must be brought to that place if we will have victory and hope in our lives, that we are utterly powerless to change people, our situation, to even help ourselves. That there's no strength in us. We, we've depleted that. There's nothing more that we can draw upon. We, we've expended all the wisdom and the, all the angles. That we've, just, we've used them all up. And we're tired of it. Let's come to that place of, of complete reliance upon God, recognizing that, God, I don't know what to do. I, I got nothing, nothing here, but my eyes are on you. Do you know that they went out the next day and Jehoshaphat says, you know, let's put the singers out in front. Forget the archers, forget the cavalry or the footmen, put the singers out there. And it says, as they praise God, God destroyed the enemy. They didn't have to fight that day because God fought for them. That's what he will do for you and for me. So Psalm 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock 
and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth, praise to our God. Many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. Blessed is that man who makes the Lord his trust and does not respect the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. Let's wait patiently on the Lord. Let's cry out to him. He will hear. And look what it says. He brought me out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, set my feet upon a rock, established my steps. Big difference between having your feet. Have you ever stepped in clay that was so, it was just muck, that when you stepped into it, you left your boot behind? Like, you, or if you could move at all, you were stuck. You were mired. You could not pull yourself out of there. And he's like, well, he picked me up out of that, and he put my feet on solid ground, on ground where I had a, a good foundation and mobility and freedom. And that's what God will do for you. And then put a new song in my mouth, rejoicing. Praise to our God. Many will see it and fear and trust in the Lord. How amazing that God can take the brokenness from our lives, restore and heal us, and use that to draw other people to him. Let's thank him. Lord, thank you for your word, for the power of it, that you are a just and a holy God. Lord, we also lift up Robin before you. We pray for her health. We ask, Lord, that you would guide us into truth, that we would see when we're mired in that pit and it's dark in there and we can't find our way out and no matter how much we struggle, we just seem to be sinking in. Lord, open our eyes to see your truth, that you are the only one who can save us. You're the only one who we can run to in our time of desperate need, that we have no answer for the problems in the world. We can't even help the problems and the feelings we have in our own lives. So, Lord, I pray that we would not make lies our trust. We would not trust in them. We would not uh, walk violently or selfishly, but humbly before our God, who knows all things and is able to save us. Thank you, Lord, that you love us because you love us. May we turn to you today, Lord. May we trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.